And so just be with us. And again, may we marvel at you and may you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so anyone who has been a Christian for a while knows that life as a believer is not easy. If you think it is, I don't know what kind of life that you're living, but it's not easy. And I'm not just talking about us dealing with hostility from those who don't know Christ. I think the hardest part of being a Christian is our own battle against sin. When you're an unbeliever, you're not even aware of it, you know, but when you're a Christian, you're aware of it. And so we know in our head, we know that Christ defeated both the penalty and the power of sin, but we also know that sometimes it feels like sin still has that power over us, right? Especially when we give into it. We sometimes allow ourselves to give into sin's seductive call. And this can throw us into a crisis, especially if it's like the really big sins. And so when that happens, Christians often wonder, like, have I gone too far this time? Have I gone too far in what I've done? Have I crossed the line where God's now going to be done with me? Have I proven myself ultimately to be an apostate, which is someone who was never saved in the first place, but self-deceived? And see, those kind of questions plague us because I think, it's just my opinion, but I think I'm right on this, I think that personal sin in the life of the believer is probably the biggest contributor to our doubting of God. It's not what the world says. I think it's our own sin. That, that when it's happening in our life, it contributes to our doubt, makes us doubt God, it makes us doubt our salvation. But there's good news. And that good news is the point of the text. And so here's the point of the text. Whenever or when a believer falls hard, there is a way back. When a believer falls hard, there is a way back. Now, of course, that presupposes that a believer can fall hard, okay? And, and the text is going to show us that for sure. It's going to show us this in two events in Abram's life. And really what, you're, what you have in these two events are two problems, two threats to the promise that God made to him. And in the midst of each of these two problems, there's a right way and there's a wrong way to deal with it. And one part, he's definitely going to deal with it the wrong way. But I don't want you to get me wrong. This, is not, this text is not about telling us that by doing the right thing, that's what makes us right with God. No, you'd miss the point. Instead, here's what you're going to see in this text. What it's going to show us is that your proximity to God is exactly what will determine whether you do the right thing or the wrong thing. Think about that. Your proximity to God is what will determine whether or not you're going to do what's right or what's wrong. And just think about it. Nobody who is actively in the process of drawing close to God and being in God's word and just ever getting closer and closer to him, that person's not the person who's all of a sudden going to do the worst thing. That's just not how it works. Usually there's a trajectory away from God before somebody does the worst thing. And also no one who's been drifting further and further away from God and from his word and from his people is going to be a paragon of Christian virtue. No, that person's going to be the exact opposite, right? And so proximity to God, as I said, it's our proximity to God that determines whether or not we are going to live as those who are set free from sin or if we're going to act like those who are still in bondage to it. And again, the life of Abram definitely shows us this, but it also shows us the good news that when a believer falls, there is a way back. So I need to get us to where we, where we were, like where we are. So I need to quickly review what we saw last time. Last time we looked very closely at the call of Abraham or Abram at this point. And what we saw is that in Abram, God was starting to fix everything that Adam broke. In fact, in verse, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it intentionally went out of its way to show us that God was beginning to reverse the curse in some sense. Just a couple examples. In Genesis chapters 1 through 11, five times the word curse is used. But when God calls Abram, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, five times blessing, which is the opposite of curse. Five times blessing is used. The fall cursed the ground or the land. Yet Abram is promised land that would be tended by God himself. The fall led to the cursing of Satan and his seed, that Satan and his seed are cursed. And yet this call of Abram says those who, are, who bless Abram will be blessed. So through Abram, you, you could be blessed rather than cursed. Okay, And what that means is Abram was going to be related in some way to the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15, who ultimately would defeat Satan and defeat the curse. We saw that the fall brought difficulty in childbearing, 
And Abram, who had a problem with that, being an old man with a barren wife, yet God promised innumerable descendants to him, which shows even in the call of Abram, God could also overcome and reverse the difficulty in childbearing. I mean, something like that's no big deal for God. And we also saw that even kingship was tied into this promise to Abram because through him and his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Additionally, we saw that the the seed of the serpent throughout the first 11 chapters always tries to build a name for themselves, whereas God is the one who tells Abram, I will give you a name. And God said the same thing to his descendant, David, I will give you a name. And it's all pointed to the greatest descendant of all, Jesus Christ, who was given the name above every name. Okay, so for those who are of the true seed, right, God's the one who gives them the name. So clearly, that passage, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, was a very pivotal, pivotal passage in the Bible. It changed the trajectory of history in almost 180 degrees, like a 180 degree turn. See, mankind had only progressively been getting further and further away from God, but now the Lord was starting to make a pathway back to himself. And what we saw in that text is Abram started off very well. Even though he was raised as a moon worshiper, when God called him, Abram left it all behind. He moved out on foot as a 75-year-old man out of the safety of his clan, and he went down to the land that God said, I will show it to you. Additionally, once Abram got there, he built altars to God and worshiped him. It even tells us that he called on the name of Yahweh. He called on the name of the Lord. So, and also we saw that Abram built altars next to trees, which I said is always a, a, a key theme. You know, that, that it's, it's to look Eden-like. We're worshiping God back in the place where the tree of life was. And that's why even in the tabernacle, in the temple, the menorah is shaped like an almond tree, right? All these details are important. All these details are there on purpose. And honestly, I find it fascinating. Now, one thing I've been asking you to notice again and again since we started Genesis is that the move away from God, at least in the book of Genesis, is in the direction toward the east. Now, I'm not saying if you move to Texas, that's proof you're moving away from God. I'm just saying, because it is east from here, what I am saying is that in the book of Genesis, going east is away from God. The move back toward God is in the direction to the west. And there's a lot of instances of this, and I've been, and I've been like repeating them again and again. So you could go back to the last sermon on Sermon Audio, and you could review all that. But one thing that was absolutely fascinating in, in the last text was that it tells us Abram built an altar between the cities of Bethel and Ai. And, and Bethel was to his west and Ai was to his east. And I mentioned to you that Bethel in Hebrew means house of God and Ai means ruins. And again, ruins to the east, house of God to the west. And in between them, the altar where Abram is, is, is worshiping God as he knows his house is to the west. And so this painted really perfectly, it painted the picture of being near God and being near the house of God, which is westward and the evil ways of mankind is eastward. And so Abram was at the right place. He was at the right place and he was calling on the name of the Lord. And so at that point, Genesis chapter 12, all the way up to verse 9, Abram was a paragon of virtue. He was chosen by God. He was called by God. We see that that call changed him. It caused him to turn away from the paganism of his birth and to call upon the one true God. It gave him a heart to obey the calling, which was demonstrated by him picking up his feet and his family and moving down to Canaan, away from Haran. It's demonstrated by the fact that he builds two altars, one in the north, one in the center of Israel or Canaan at this point, right? And again, the center one between Bethel and Ai, just huge picture that's painting back to God, okay? And so if we were to just stop right there and I were to say, what do you think would come next? You'd probably say more Abrahamic goodness. He's probably just going to keep doing awesome things. I mean, look at this guy's trajectory. It's only going to get better, but it doesn't. And that's where this text gets kind of weird and troubling for us. And this is one thing I love about the Bible. It's real. It doesn't present its heroes in some romanticized way. It shows real life. And I'm sure most of us can, can relate to this. Listen, when, at least talking from my experience, when I first came to the Lord, when God first called me, I was overwhelmed with his mercy. And I was, I was completely just, I dived full in. 
to God, right? I, I seemed like a fanatic. My, my family thought I was a fanatic, that's for sure. I had the zeal. You couldn't shut me up about God. And this was about the first six months of me being a Christian, okay? I was super zealous. But again, how long did it last? Six months. Eventually, it wore off. And even though I was still redeemed, I noticed I started slipping back into some pretty bad worldliness. As a 17-year-old, I went places I wasn't supposed to go with an ID I wasn't supposed to have. I did things I wasn't supposed to do. I fell into some false doctrine I should have never believed. I hung out with people that I should have never hung out with. And so my progress in the Lord was halted for probably about a year and a half. But then later, I turned back from that nonsense and reacquired a lot of that original zeal and started to grow and grow again and then stumbled some more, and then started growing again, and then stumbled, and so the cycle goes. Now, let me ask you, does that sound like your life too, maybe? Does that sound familiar for the Christian? And it's frustrating, isn't it? Now, the Bible calls it progressive sanctification, where we're becoming more like Jesus, but it's kind of a roller coaster ride up there. We got our heights, and then a short dip, and then we, we climb more. That's just, just the way it goes, but it's frustrating, very frustrating. Well, That frustration is going to make you relate to our text, I think, very well tonight. Why? Because even though Abram ended on a good note early in his faith with that early zeal in chapter 12, verse 9, he's immediately going to mess up pretty bad. He's going to mess up probably worse than any of us in this room have ever messed up, and yet this is God's guy. This is the guy that God is going to pretty much bless the nations through. And so Abram's going to mess up, but he's going to find his way back. And in the midst of it all, God is still with him. That is why grace is amazing. Even Abram, this guy who God's going to bless the nations through, even he needed to be saved by grace. This man that God uses to start to pave the way back to salvation, he was a flawed man, just like the rest of us. He was a sinful man in the care of a gracious God. And that's all of our story too, isn't it? And praise God for that. So, I think with all that buildup, I should probably get into the text rather than dangle this even any further. And so, the last thing we saw was after Abram built that altar in the center of Israel between Bethel and Ai, he then goes down south to the Negev, which is the desert region of Canaan or or later Israel. Our text picks up right there. Now, I said at the beginning, our text shows us that when a believer falls hard, there is a way back, and the text is going to show this through two events. In each event, there's a problem or a threat to the promise. And then the question for us in the text is, what does this man of God, what is this man who's called by God, what does he do? Well, let's see what the first problem event. What is the problem? Look at the first part of verse 10, just the first part. Moses writes this, there was a famine in the land. Problem, right? God just got done promising Abram that he will inherit this very land. God told him he would make a great nation out of him, that he would have many descendants, that he would possess this land. Well, when God makes a promise, and I think if you've walked with God long enough, you know this, when he makes a promise, there's usually a lag between promise and fulfillment. And in between that gap of time, a lot of tests of faith come, trials and tribulations. See, God did not tell Abram exactly when he would fulfill this promise. He he did not promise that there would be no hard times that there'd be no tests or trials or tribulations before it's fulfilled. In fact, God almost always brings trials and tribulations because he uses that to mature us, to build us before he fulfills the promises. For example, if I promise my nine-year-old daughter my car, hey, you're going to have my car one day, doesn't mean I'm giving her the keys right now. If I gave her the keys right now, not only would she destroy the gift, she'd probably destroy herself in the process. Okay, so guess what? I made the promise, but she's got to grow up a little bit. She's got to get taller so she can see over that steering wheel. You know, she's got to get a little bit of life experience and, and you know, go through the DMV's training and deal with those people and those lines being rude and axed, you know, and all that. And then after that, I could give her my keys and then she could start driving, right? The point is, if God gives the promise right away, sometimes you're like the nine-year-old with a, the car, that's not, that's not good, right? So there's a reason why God delays it. Well, anyway, this threat, this famine, this test in between the promise and fulfillment, this was a real threat. 
A famine means there is not enough food or water for Abram, his wife, his nephew, and his servants, and his livestock. If he starves to death, or his wife starves to death, so much for a nation coming from him. So much for for him inheriting a land that killed him with starvation. So, of course, Abe has a decision to make. Now, if we were to read no further, and I were to ask you, what do you think Abraham should do? You're all going to say the right thing. You're going to say he needs to trust God. God made a promise. And even if it doesn't look good, you trust God. If we really trust God, then we know he has to keep his promises. God can't lie. And so even if there is a famine, you tell Abraham, hey, buddy, you know God's going to keep you alive. He's going to keep your wife alive. He has to. You know, Lot might die. No promise was made to him. But, you know, he at least has to keep you and Sarai alive. And not only that, the famine can't last forever. And so God will find a way to preserve us here. And that would be the right answer. And that is what, as a biblical counselor, I have to remind people of all the time in counseling. See, faith is not just believing that God exists. Even unbelievers believe God exists. I know that sounds contradictory, but Romans 1 says they just suppress what they already know. Okay? It's, faith isn't believing God exists. Faith is trusting him. Do you believe what he says in his word? Do you believe his promises? If you believe he could save you from your sins and his own wrath, if, if God could save you from pretty much burning in hell because he's a holy God, he's righteous, you're a guilty sinner. If he could save you from that, then he could save you through whatever famine or difficult problem you're going through. Because my point is, a famine or whatever your circumstance is, is finite and compared to your infinite problem of sin. And yet if God could solve your infinite problem through Jesus Christ, he could solve your smaller problem as well. If he could do the greater, he could do the lesser. So again, if you say you trust that he saved your soul but you're saying you don't trust he's going to get you through your current problem, then there's a big disconnect. And you're not trusting God appropriately, and and, and your faith is or lack thereof is showing it. So the point is, the right answer, as I know you guys would have said, is to trust God. But alas, Abram does not choose the right answer here. Look at the rest of verse 10. Moses writes this. He says, so... Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. So God promises Abram the land of Canaan, but Abram had so little faith in the promise that he leaves Canaan altogether and goes to Egypt. Now, I read somewhere that that's like a 600-kilometer trek by foot. And so old Abraham's willing to do that. And... For those who are familiar with the Bible, you might realize that this is hinting at something that's going to happen later. Later, another great famine will come, and it will end up getting all of Abram's descendants into Egypt. And so it's kind of interesting how God's sovereignty works with human choices. Like Abram in his human choice is choosing to be faithless here and says, I'm going to go to Egypt because of this famine. And yet God in his sovereignty is able to work that into his decree to where exactly what God wants to happen is what happens, even though Abram's making his own decision. How that all works, can't tell you. That's why I just say think with both hands. But the fact is, Abram's mistakes are going to form a type or shadow or parallel to what's going to happen to Israel later. They're also going to go to Egypt due to a famine. They're going to have issues with the Pharaoh. They're going to come out with plunder, okay? And Egypt's going to get plagues. All that stuff happens here. And so it's interesting how Abram, as an individual, in a condensed sense, is experiencing what Israel's going to experience as a nation in an extended sense, and then later Christ, as an individual again, is going to experience it in a condensed sense. God orchestrates everything so perfectly. But anyhow, Abram, here, getting back to the point, he's acting out of fear. He's acting like a coward. And I wish I could say that's all that he did that was wrong here, is he just went to Egypt. But what we're about to see is really troubling. Look at verse 11. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, look, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, if I stopped there, you would think he's just being a smoothie, right? What a smoothie, eh? You know, his his wife's going to be like, oh, Abe, you know, and all that. But we need to keep reading. This has nothing to do with Abe being a sweet talker. In verse 12, he continues by saying, when the Egyptians see you, They will say, this is his wife. They will kill me, but let you live. In other words, Sarai, you may be old, 
but you still have a certain degree of hotness that is dangerous for me, okay? This is dangerous. Haven't you heard of how the Egyptian nobles operate? If they see a beautiful married woman, they've got no fear of God. They're going to remove the obstacle, a.k.a. the husband, and then they're going to seize the woman. That's what they do. Now, we don't know how Abram knows this, but he's actually right because we do see this play out. The rest of the chapter shows us that the Egyptians, if they see a pretty woman, they, they take the woman, right? At least their nobles do. So maybe word got around. He knew that was what was going to happen. Now, I want you to think about that, right? Abram already knew this about Egypt. So he chooses to leave a dangerous famine to go to a dangerous country where he might get murdered on account of his wife. Does that calculus make any sense to you? You might be thinking, wait a second, you're leaving a dangerous place to go to a dangerous place. Here you might starve, there you might get murdered. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, but it actually does when you think about sin, okay? Think about it this way. Humans have no control over a famine, and we don't think we do. We know we can't make it rain. We know we can't make seeds grow. We know we can't do any of that stuff. But when you're going into a dangerous social environment like the hood, you think that, well, with my street smarts, I got some control, right? So it's the idea that I can't control that, but I can control this. I would rather be somewhere where I have one hand on the steering wheel rather than be in a place where I completely have to trust in God. That's bad. That's faithless. That's the the human desire to be in control and not to accept God's control or to trust God's control. That's what's happening here. He's going from one bad situation to a worse situation, which is way worse, but he's thinking it's better because he could control it with his scheming, with his street smarts. He thinks, hey, I could avoid getting killed in Egypt. I can't can't necessarily guarantee I won't die of the famine. So it's faithless. The problem with this thinking is he would rather enter a dangerous situation where he could trust his own power than remain in the situation where he has to trust in God's power, God's power to fulfill his promises. And let me tell you something. When you're trusting yourself over God, it never works. It never works. In fact, what I've noticed is the folks who try to be in control and always keep their hand on the wheel tend to be the most anxious people I have to counsel, right? Because they've never learned that, hey, you are not the God of this universe. You're not in control. God is. You just got to trust him with what happens. When we try to take control, it almost never works out the way we want it to. And we're going to see the same with Abram here. His measure of control here requires him to be a sleazeball. His, his, street, mart, his street smart way to figure out how to stop the Egyptians from killing him is pretty messed up. Look at verse 13. He says to Sarai, he says, please say, you're my sister. So it will go well for me because of you, and my life will be spared on your account. Now, first, you might not see the problem. I mean, you might see some of the problem, but this is horrible for a lot of reasons. First, it is a lie. And I know what somebody's going to say, but wait a minute. He does this again in chapter 20, which is bad enough, right? Same sin he's going to do again in chapter 20. But then there, he's going to justify himself by saying, well, I didn't technically lie. She is my half-sister, you know, but, but here's the thing. That's still not the truth. It's a half-truth presented as the full truth. And if you present a half-truth as a full truth, it's a lie. In fact, we have a label for that. It's called lying by omission. Okay, what you say might be true, but based on what you're leaving out, it makes it a lie. See, the part you say might be true, but you are intentionally leaving something out designed to get them to believe something that's not true. Abram wants them to believe that Sarai is not his wife but she is his wife. So if by him telling a half-truth gets them to believe she's not his wife, when she is, then he's lied, even if he told the truth. So yes, you can lie with the truth. Leave it to human sinners to figure out how to make the truth a lie. And that's what Abram does here. So that's the first thing. This is a lie. Second thing, notice his selfishness. He says, please do this, quote, so it will go well for me because of you. What he's saying is, hey, I'll be treated well. You're pretty. I might even be given gifts by people because they're going to want to marry you. And since I'm your brother and I'm your protector, they're going to want my approval. And so they might just give me some flocks and some gold and, and some stuff like that. So dude's trying to make a profit off of his wife's face. Okay, that's the second thing. The third thing, he's only thinking about his own life. 
He asks her to say she's his sister, so, quote, my life will be spared on your account, end quote. He's only thinking about danger to him. He's not even thinking about what kind of danger this puts her in. If, he, if what he believes about Egypt is true, they might just seize her if they think she's single. And if he outs himself as her husband to protect her at that point, it's too late. If he wants to protect her sexual purity, they're just going to kill him. And then they'll have her anyway. This whole plan is stupid, right? So what he's saying is to save me, just tell them you're my sister. Let's create a scenario where they won't try to hurt me, but you have that risk that someone might take you as their wife and they might sleep with you. And that's going to make them all complicit in adultery. Now, scholars have rightly pointed out that in this scene here, Abram is acting like Adam. See, when the serpent arrived, Adam did not step in to protect his wife. He left her in a vulnerable position. And we know what happened with that. Well, Abram's not stepping in to protect his wife here. He's actually the one putting her in the compromised position. And the result is horrible. Exactly what he believed these Egyptians do came to pass. Look at verses 14 and 15. Moses writes this. He says, when Pharaoh entered, or I mean, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. So apparently, she's pretty enough for the Egyptian leaders or princes to, to say, Pharaoh, you got to check this lady out. You're going to want this one. And then Pharaoh's like, all right, get her for me, right? And that happens. And the Hebrew word that says she was taken to Pharaoh, that word taken is laka, that means to be taken in marriage, okay? Abram's plan backfired. Another man married his wife. And just in case you doubt me, look at verse 19. I mean, we're going to get to it later, but Pharaoh, when he's rebuking him, says, I took her, past tense, I took her as my wife. He took her as his wife. Okay, so listen, this isn't like a Disney movie where it looks like that's going to happen, but at the last minute, the good guy comes in and prevents this. No, the Pharaoh actually took her and married her, and she went and lived in his home as his wife. Okay, you can imagine what that means, okay? The text does not specify how long he had her as a wife, but listen, if he took her as his wife, he slept with her, okay? And in chapter 20, when this happens again, it goes out of its way to let you know that Abimelech doesn't sleep with her. Because there's something way more on the line in chapter 20. But I'll explain that when we get to chapter 20. I'm not going to give that away now, okay? But here's the thing. Abram, who knows how long this is going on, but nobody in the ancient world, nobody in the current world, takes a wife, marries her, and then says, we're not going to consummate the marriage. If it's his wife, he's consummating the marriage. There's only one man in all of history that took a wife and didn't consummate for some time, and his name was Joseph, and he married Mary, the mother of our Lord. Otherwise, a guy takes a wife, they're consummating, conjugal rights, okay? So Abram, to save his own skin, was willing to let his wife become the wife of another man. I couldn't imagine, as a husband, putting my wife in that situation and then keeping my peace knowing that she's with another dude. That would just drive me nuts. There would be war. Anyhow, yet, verse 16, you would think, okay, maybe Abram's going to wise up at this point. Um, God, I hope this isn't where the stereotypes come from, but Abram got rich off this arrangement. In verse 16, it says, he treated Abram well because of her, and Abram acquired flocks and herds, male and female donkeys, male and female slaves, which would include Hagar, which is going to be a problem later, and camels, right? So he's being hooked up. Pharaoh was at least with her long enough to say, I like this woman, give her bro whatever he wants. And at this point, Abram could have repented and said, sir, I've let this go on long enough. I can't take this anymore. I lied. That's my wife that you're with. I need her back. Instead, Abram keeps his mouth shut and takes the wealth. This doesn't mean he was necessarily happy about what was happening to Sarai, but he was so concerned with not being killed that he would let it continue. And then he thought, well, if they're going to make me rich, shouldn't waste the situation, and so then he, he takes it. One commentator rightly said that Abram traded his wife in exchange for sheep and oxen and donkeys. It's just a bad trade. So you might be looking at this like, man, this is bad. You might be thinking, I've never thought 
of Abram that way. And me neither, right? You know, usually I'll read through this so fast that I'm not catching the word laka, what it means for him to take her as a wife. And then later when he says, I took her as the wife, you know, sometimes you don't catch those things when you're reading through it fast. But when I'm preaching a sermon, I got to stop on every word. I got to read the commentaries. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is as bad as it sounds, right? But there's good news. When someone has been called by God, the Lord will not let them stay in this kind of gutter forever. He will pull them out. Now, in our context, it's often by the church. He uses the church to pull people out. But Abram had no church. Like, he's the only God follower in the world right now, except Melchizedek. Okay? And so God is going to pull him out directly. Look at verse 17. It says, But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his household with severe plagues because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So if Abram won't fix the situation himself, then God will. And so what he does is he strikes Pharaoh and his house with plagues. That is fascinating because it's proleptic. It's pointing forward to what God's going to do to a different Pharaoh and and Egyptians at a later time on account of Israel. It's a condensed version of what will happen hundreds of years later. But this Pharaoh, unlike the later Pharaoh, got the point. This one wasn't going to harden his heart like the one in Exodus. So he gets hit with these plagues, and God must have told him straight up, this is because of Sarai. Because right away, the Pharaoh is going to rebuke Abram over Sarai. This is very clear. Look at verses 18 and 19. It says, So Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her as my wife? Now, here's your wife, take her and go. One commentator said the only victim in this is Pharaoh. I want to say he's a victim. I mean, he sees his women that he thinks is pretty. But the point is, in, in this sense, you know, Abram is the true villain, not Pharaoh. Now, it makes you think, this Pharaoh is a type of man who will kill husbands and seize wives. And so you think he'd consider that option. Okay, now I know this is the husband. I still like his wife. I'll just X this guy. I'll take care of it. But my guess is that didn't happen because those plagues were pretty severe. This Pharaoh was terrified of the God of Abram. God made his point. Pharaoh's like, I'm not touching this guy. And, you know, this is one of those things that I think we need to think about a little more. I can imagine God telling him that, listen, this man is my chosen servant. You leave him alone. You give him his wife back. And yet, St. Abram, the same guy, does something like this again in chapter 20. And there, God's going to say the same thing. This is my prophet, right? And in that case, God will make sure Sarah does not get touched by another man. And and again, there's a reason I'll tell you later. But but God tells that king, Abimelech, because that conversation's recorded for us, the one with Pharaoh's not. But what God tells Abimelech is he says that, listen, this is my prophet. You're not going to touch him. You're not going to touch his wife, or you're going to die. You know, God doesn't play around. And so I can imagine if something like that was similarly spoken to Pharaoh by God, I could picture Pharaoh, though, saying, all right, you're God, I'm not, but this is your guy? I mean, a guy who pimps out his wife? Because that's what he did, right? And it just made me think a little bit about it. How often does the world look at God and shake their fist on our account and say, these are your people? These hypocrites, these people who shout loudly everything we're not supposed to do, but then you find out secretly again and again in the news that they've been doing these things they tell us all not to do. That's horrible, and that happens way too much. I think it's the same kind of situation, and I pray that God will never be embarrassed on account of us, that instead we will be faithful rather than faithless, that we'll show a lost world that when God chooses you, he changes you. And when he changes you, you have the power to resist sin. Regardless, God would tell Pharaoh, this is my guy, don't touch him. And that's the end of it. You know, release his wife. Don't you even think of hurting him. You know, and and listen, I know the world could look at that and say, that's not fair, man. Pharaoh's a sinner, but Abram's a sinner, pimping out his wife and stuff like that. But because God chooses him, God's going to let him get away with this and still make him the man of promise. Yep, God is free to do that. God chooses who he will, and then God is the one who takes care of the sin. He doesn't have to take care of the sin of Pharaoh, but he made a promise to Abram, and he takes care of that sin, and we'll see that. We'll see that Abram does walk back to God, but it's not about fairness. 
You know, the only fair thing is that everybody goes to hell. When people say it's not fair that, that, that God chooses some and he doesn't choose everyone, you know, and I'm not going to get into the details of that, that right now, but the point is, you know, the only fair thing is we've all sinned, and the wages of sin is death. You want what's fair? Be careful what you ask for. Instead, I would rather marvel that God saves anyone, and I'm thankful that he saved Abram, thankful that he saved me. But anyhow, Pharaoh, as we saw, rebukes Abram, but he doesn't touch him. He gives him his wife back and says, you got to go, man. <laughs> and, and so he drives him out just like a later Pharaoh will do to the whole nation of Israel. Verse 20 sums it up this way. It says, then Pharaoh gave his men orders about him and they sent him away with his wife and all he had. So Abram was not to be touched. He's forced to leave, but it's weird. He leaves with more than he entered with. So even he plundered Egypt like Israel as a nation will do later. But we have to remember, this is wealth gained by wickedness. So it will come at a price. I think we could all honestly agree that this is a low moment for Abram. He fled the famine because he didn't trust God. He went to a place where God was the furthest from his mind. This led him to do horrible things. Thank God that God intervened. It's interesting that in this whole event, nowhere does Abram talk to God build an altar to God, reach out to God, or even say the word God in any of the dialogue we have from him. God was not in his mind, okay? He just wasn't there. But God would not let that be the last word. God is going to get him out of this. But listen, there are still consequences. And I want you to think about that. There are consequences for our sin. Do you think that his wife would forget that he put her in danger? Do you think he would, she would forget that, wow, he got rich off of that? I don't think she's going to forget that. Would she forget having to give herself to another man, to an Egyptian? And was Egypt really behind them? Would the consequences of Egypt never follow them? I mean, think about it. Hagar, an Egyptian slave, goes with them, right? Abram gives his wife to an Egyptian man. Later, she's going to return the favor and give him to an Egyptian woman. This all causes problems, causes all sorts of problems, right? So again, there's consequences. And if that's not bad enough, right? Abram goes down to Egypt to escape the famine. He ends up doing this horrible thing to his wife. Then he gets kicked out of Egypt and just goes right back to the famine anyway. Just didn't help him at all. So stupid plan. He deserved it. His wife didn't, but he, he deserved what he got here. This operation was a giant failure. And truth be told, he failed to believe what the author of Psalm 33 later wrote. And every believer in God should, should know this. So I have it up there, Psalm 33, verses 18 and 19. He says, But look, the Lord keeps his eye on those who fear him, those who depend on his faithful love, to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. So think about that, right? We trust that, hey, if we fear God, he's not going to let Pharaoh kill us, and he's not going to let us starve to death in Canaan. But Abram did not think this way. If he thought this way, he would have never gone down to Egypt and this horrible event would have never happened. But his lack of faith, right, at this point is indicative of his character at this point. He was that new zealous believer that we read about last time, but this was his first hard fall and he fell hard, right? Now, even if after he'd gone down to Egypt, he still could have said, you know what, now that I'm here, this was a bad decision, but I still can trust God and not do this to my wife. Why? Because God said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Had he believed God, then he would know Pharaoh can't kill me here. He can't. If I say this is my wife and Pharaoh comes after me, God's still going to give him those plagues, right? And then I don't have to do all this, all this bad stuff. So the point is, in this whole situation, Abram was entirely 100% faithless. The reason he fell so hard is because he stopped believing God's promises during this time. And it will be the same with any of us. If you start doubting God's goodness, if you start doubting his provision, if you start thinking his ways can't be right because you're just not happy enough following what he says, or you're having to stay in a situation that, that you think is a little uncomfortable, the point is, if you start doubting his provision, if you start taking matters into your own hands rather than listening to the word of God, to the Bible, then you're going to fall hard. You're going to fall hard. It's inevitable. You will walk into a pit with only yourself to blame. 
Again, a lot of times when people come to me and like their whole life is out of order, sometimes it's not their fault. But a lot of times, you know, you start listening to them and it's like, wow, you're the one who set the bomb off. You're the one who brought the bomb into your life. You're the one who lit the fuse. You're the one who watched it explode with one bad decision after another, after another, after another, after another. It's like now to fix this, we got to go back to this, 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 this. But here's the thing. The good news is I'm always able to show them the way back. And we see that with chapter 13 with Abram. There is the way back. And it's actually very simple. It's the same way back for him as it is for us. You have to go back to God. You have to go back to faithfulness. And so we see this play out in the second event, in the second problem. So let's look to chapter 13 to see this. Look at verses 1 through 4. Moses writes this. He says, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with them. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had formerly been to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. This is why, guys, you can't just always stop at the end of a chapter. Can't you tell that this was meant to be read in light of what just happened? Okay, He fell hard, but this shows the way back. First, he goes back the way he came. He leaves Egypt and he goes to the Negev, right? Which was that southern part of Israel or Canaan. It tells us that his wife, himself, his possessions, and Lot were with him. Of course, that means Lot was down there in the last event, but he wasn't mentioned because he had no role in it. And Sarai's there in this event, but she won't be mentioned because she's got no real role here. The role in this chapter is going to be Abram and Lot, okay? But the point is he's going back. In verse 2, Moses intentionally points out Abram's wealth. It says he was very rich, okay, these animals and money. But the problem is actually going to come from this wealth, and we'll see that in a few minutes. Even though he keeps the wealth that he got from sin, it's going to come with its problems. So keep that in the back of your mind. It then tells us in those first four verses that he goes in stages. So he gets to the Negev, but then he goes in stages from the Negev back up to that center part of Canaan. So that lets us know this took time. Now, the most important detail is what it tells us in verses 3 and 4. It tells us he went back, quote, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. That is where things ended on a good note last time. And if you remember, as I already said, Bethel means house of God. Ai means ruins. Bethel's on the west. Ai's on the east. Abram previously built an altar there where he first called on the name of the Lord and worshiped God there. Okay, God, or Abram answered that initial call from God with zeal, with gusto, but we saw him fall hard. Well, now notice what he's doing here. He goes back to the last place he was faithful. Think about that. He goes back to the last place he was faithful. And the fact that he got there in stages shows that sometimes it takes many steps to get back to the last time things were good for you. It's not always quick and easy. I mean, it depends on how many bombs you set off, you know, how many steps you have to take to get back there. But Abram got there in stages. And what does Abram do when he gets there? Verse 4 ends by saying this. It says, And Abram called on the name of the Lord, on the name of Yahweh there. He didn't mention God at all in Egypt. But here he's calling on his name again. Uh, commentator Kurt Strasner says it so well here that I'm just going to quote him because I could not write it better myself. Here's what he writes about this. He says, what do you think Abram said to the Lord at the altar at, of Bethel? Lord, look at what a faithful servant I've been. Not a chance. That killing stone, meaning the altar, must have been wet both with Abram's tears and with the blood of an unblemished lamb, the atoning sacrifice for sin. Abram called on the name of the Lord that day as a convicted sinner and as a sinner who knew that there was a sacrifice for sins. Here again, we find that Abram is a bright example of faith, this time faith not simply in the promises of God, but also in the provision of God, faith in the God who justifies the ungodly, end quote. I'm like, all right, man, that was good. You deserve to write a commentary if you could write it like that. 
And, and here's the thing. This, this proves the point that I'm saying that these two events together really do point, the, the, point out the truth that when a believer falls hard, there's a way back because we just read the way back. Abram went back to the one place that he knew the presence of God was at. He went to the one place where he knew a sacrifice could be made. He went to the one place where he could look west and think of God and the presence of God. And at the same time, he could look east and be reminded of what a life away from God means. It means ruin. Now, yes, Abram's marriage is not going to be good at this point. His life's not good. We can assume the famine is still going on at this point. And now those larger flocks, that wealth is going to be a burden. Yet rather than feel sorry for himself or angry at God, why'd you give me all these flocks? No, rather than being angry at God, he runs back to the one place he knows he will find God. Rather than thinking his new problems are out of God's control and he has to take matters into his own hands, no, he clings to God. Rather than only knowing God as a promise giver as he knew before, now he knows God as the one who received him back as a prodigal son and forgave his sin. So, As bad as that previous event was, it strengthened Abram's faith in the end. He now knows more about God. God is powerful and makes promises, but God forgives me. God saved me and my wife from Pharaoh with plagues. It's powerful, but then God received me back. He forgave me. That means his his election, his gift, and his calling are irrevocable. So Abram's learning more about God. And loved ones, it's the same with us. When we mess up and we fall hard, you don't have to fly to Israel and pitch a tent near Bethel, okay? The altar, that's not where the altar of forgiveness is these days. Where is forgiveness found for us? At the foot of the cross. That's where we need to return. You just need to return to the basics of the gospel when you've hit the ground hard. Return to the fact that Jesus died for our sins. In fact, return to this fact in 1 John 1, 9, which should be up there. He says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's his promise. If you really belong to him, you come back to him and this is how you come back. You confess and he will forgive you. Remember, Jesus taught us how God is, right? He told us that that God is like the shepherd that rejoices when one lost sheep comes back. God is like the widow who has a house party when she finds one lost coin. He tells us that in heaven, there's a celebration every time one sinner repents. And probably most strikingly, Jesus describes God as the father in the parable of the prodigal son. A man, when he sees his disgraced son from the distance, is willing to embarrass himself by pulling, girding his loins, which shows off his his old man legs, and then running, running to throw his arms around his son. And to put his cloak and his, and his ring on him and say, my son is alive. That is how God looks at us when we come back to the foot of the cross. That's why we should not doubt his grace or his salvation. We often feel like we've fallen be, beyond recovery. But that's not true. It's only beyond recovery if you stay in the sin and you keep moving east. M- further and further away from God and then you die in that state. Well, then, yeah, you weren't a believer most likely. Okay, but if you keep moving back in the direction of God, back westward towards Bethel, metaphorically speaking, if you draw near to God, what does the Bible say he will do to you? James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Okay? So draw near to God. He'll come near to you. Mourn over your sin. Hate the fact that you sin like that. Humble yourself before God, admitting he's right, and move back to him. Obey what his word says. You draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And when we come back to God, and we bask in that love and forgiveness, it changes us. It wises us up. That's what repentance does. It's as I said earlier, look, when you are close to God, it changes everything. Your proximity to God, it dictates whether or not you're going to do good or evil. Abram was very distant from God in Egypt. And so that made his fall as bad as it was. It was not surprising. 
But now in chapter 13, we say Abram's close to God. He went back to the one spot where he knew he could find him. He's contrite. He's brokenhearted. He's worshiping. And as long as he stays close to God, do you think he's going to make the bad choice in chapter 13? Not a chance. Not a chance. So there's a new problem that he now has to deal with. But this time in his close proximity to God. Look at verses 5 through 7. It's going to tell us what this latest problem is. It says, Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents, but the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were living in the land. Now, I think it's safe to assume, even though the text doesn't directly say it, I think it's safe to assume that the famine was still going on. Or if it ended, maybe things weren't yet as lush as they were. Okay, And so the result now was Abram's wealth, as well as the, the wealth of what Lot acquired, they couldn't share the land. It couldn't sustain them. And that's why I think there's still a famine, because you've got millions of Israelites pouring in there in the book of Joshua, and the land could sustain them just fine. But you've got two rich guys here, and the land can't sustain them. I think that implies that the famine was still going on, that water was probably sparse, and so there wasn't enough food and water for their flocks and for their families, and so this caused problems. The shepherds of each of, each of the two men started fighting, and this is happening when they're also surrounded by pagans, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, who are also competing for the same resources. It's a pretty big problem, isn't it? You're dividing from within, and there's potential threats from without. So this could be the type of situation where Abram could do something foolish again. So what's he to do? Well, the Abram in Egypt would have thought of a scheme that would have backfired. He would have looked to a more lush place. But what does this renewed Abram do? Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, So Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. I mean, this is pretty amazing. Abram decides this time to put people ahead of himself. He's going to put people in his life ahead of himself and ahead of getting rich. So he says, hey, let's not fight. We're relatives. You're my flesh and blood. This isn't worth it. I'd rather preserve the relationship with you. So you pick. I will lay down my rights for you. If you go one way, I'll go the opposite. I'm not going to get in your way. And so if you think about it, this is the exact opposite kind of thing that he said to Sarai in the last chapter. And chapter 12, he's like, I want it to go well for me, so please follow my scheme. Here he doesn't care if it goes well for him. He's not opportunistic here. He's trusting God again. He knows these guys need to separate just for logistic reasons, but he's not trying to get the upper hand. He's like, whatever happens, I know God will take care of me. So Lot, I'm leaving this in your control. You pick where you want to go. So Abram did what was right. Likewise, when a believer repents and draws back near to God through Christ, you're going to see that believer get more plugged into church. You're going to see the, the way they treat their spouses a lot better. You're going to see their effort at living with integrity is a lot more intentional. You're just going to see that difference. When they fall hard, but they come back, you see a new zeal in them. Same type of thing we're seeing with Abram here. Now, unfortunately, Lot is not learning from his uncle's good example. Instead, it's like he's learning from Abram's bad example from the previous event. Look at verses 10, and 10 through 13. It says, Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zoar was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. End quote. Now I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time on this because we're going to see in chapter 19 just how bad Lot's decision really was. But I do want you to notice a few things here. First, this is in the Jordan Valley or Jordan Plain, which means it's outside of the promised land. And it's going to make it clear because it's going to tell us Abram stays in Canaan, Lot goes to the Jordan Plain. So this is outside of the land of promise. He is leaving the promise. In a sense, Lot is leaving 
being under the covenant, under the umbrella of the covenant, being of the household of Abram, okay? Now, it also tells us, though, this land outside the land of promise is lush. It means the famine's not there. There's a contrast. Promised land has a famine right now, not looking good. Non-promised land, in a certain direction, is looking lush. In fact, it's compared to the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God. It's compared to Egypt, which Egypt normally doesn't have famines because the Nile waters everything there, right? But let me ask you something. When we look closely, what direction is the Jordan plain? Verses 11 and 12, somebody said it, but verses 11 and 12 answer with this contrast, right? It says, then Lot journeyed eastward and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Lot went east. Abram stayed in Canaan where he was supposed to be. Lot went near Sodom, a place that was known for its wickedness and rebellion against God. Now, another interesting thing that you might not catch here is Lot is being compared to Eve, okay? Again, Hebrew writers expect you to pay attention to the details. They're not going to directly say a lot of stuff. So you look at, at Eve, right? It says Eve looked and saw. That seems kind of redundant. She looked and saw that the fruit was desirable. And here it says the same thing. Lot looked and saw that the valley was lush and, and, and all of that. Same, same format, right? So what it's showing is that he followed his eyes rather than the word of God. Eve did the same thing. She knew what God said would happen if you eat from that fruit, but she followed her eyes. Lot knew what God said to Abram. He knew the the greatness that Abram would get in Canaan, at least according to the word of God. But his eyes told him, no, go east. Go east to this great city that's in the midst of a great garden. Hmm, a city and a lush garden. It was a counterfeit. The city of man always is a counterfeit of the city of God. We see at the end in Revelation, it's going to be a world city and a world garden. And here, Sodom and and those cities of the plain are are just trying to to mimic that. I think the repetition is getting very sad at this point. Cain built a city in the east. God destroys it with the flood. Humanity builds the city in the east at Babel. God destroys it by knocking the tower down and scattering them. Both cities in the east ended in ruins because God destroyed them. Well, Lot now moves east towards the great city of Sodom. Verse 10 tells us what's going to happen. It's eventually going to be destroyed. And in chapter 19, God's going to destroy this city as well and leave it in ruins. Ai, to the east is ruins. To the west is Bethel, house of God. To the east, ruin. Lot chose poorly. Well, Abram chose righteously as we see as we would expect a repentant and contrite servant of God to do. And so because of that, God's going to reward him. See, God's grace, he forgives that past sin. So Abram does what's right, and what's God going to do? He's going to repeat the promise again, but with a couple extra details. So let's look at verses 14 through 17. It says, After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever, all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up, walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. In other words, I promised you this land before, Abram. I'm telling you again, this land is going to be yours. It's going to be your descendants' land as well. So walk within it. You don't have to stay in between Bethel and Ai right now. Walk through this whole land. Walk within it in all directions. And by the way, you're going to have so many descendants, I'm going to exaggerate and say it's like the dust of the earth, that that it's innumerable. And so think about it. Lot walked following his eyes. Abram is walking with the eyes of faith. God says, go east, west, north, south in Canaan. And Abram's like, that's what you said. That's what I'm going to do. So he's walking with the eyes of faith in a land that right now was in famine. Now, one thing I do want to point out is just a little side, is God promised this particular land to Abram and his offspring, which his offspring we know is quite clearly Israel. Now, looking at the text, how long is this promise supposed to be in effect? How long is Abram and his descendants supposed to have this particular land? Let me read verse 15 again. God says, for I will give you and your offspring forever, all the land that you see. 
And just in case forever might be a bad translation, it's not. It's the Hebrew word ad olam, which means unto eternity or forever, right? Or unto the ages upon ages upon ages. There's different ways to translate it, but it means it, it has no expiration date. So I say that because believers need to stop spiritualizing this. They find every which way to say, well, that was Old Testament. Jesus came. This doesn't matter anymore. Listen, Israel matters. It mattered then. It matters now. It will matter in the future. And it's going to matter forever. I'm reading a book called Israel Matters. It's, it's excellent. Written by an Anglican. He hits it, uh, hits it really well. See, this, this, this land was given to Abram. And what's interesting here is it's not just given to his offspring. God says, I will, quote, give you all the land you see. Now, that's interesting because Abram never received the land. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 tells us he didn't receive the land. I mean, he bought a little plot to bury his wife, okay? But he didn't inherit Israel, yet God just said, I will give you the land forever. How could Abram get the land forever? And then, of course, he dies and he didn't really get any of it. Did God not keep his promises? Or what is this pointing to? It's an important R word, resurrection. The only way Abram could inherit the land of Israel and be in it forever is if he's raised unto eternal life with all of his, his offspring. So again, I look at all this and it seems clear to me that not only does the land belong to Israel now, but it's going to belong to Israel in the millennium. I think there will be a millennium. And if the new earth is just this earth, but cleansed by fire, then there will still be land, the land of Israel and it will belong to Abram, Abraham and his uh, and Israel then as well. So again, I don't see any end to that. Now, I think the scripture makes it clear as believers, we inherit the world, but I think that one part is still, that's just going to be their share. Okay. And people could argue with me about it, but there's no way to get around that other than spiritualizing the text. Anyway, apart from that, let me jump back to the text. Verse 18 ends on a high note. As Abram wanders the land at the command of God, he will settle near trees again, and build an altar, faithfully keeping with that theme of, of a new Eden. And, he, and it says this. It says, so Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre in Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. So he settles somewhere else near these trees, but he's still worshiping the true God. That worship is only growing. And let me tell you what's encouraging about this. You might be thinking, okay, this is good. But what's going to happen in the next chapter? I don't want to be let down again. Um, next chapter, his feats of faith get even bigger, dude. He's the real 300. Let's just put it that way. There's going to be an army and he's going to have 300 something dudes and they're going to just go and, you know, they'll be like, what's up? And then in chapter 15, it gets even bigger. And that's where it tells us Abram gets justified by faith. So things are just going to keep getting better. And then chapter 16 is going to happen. But point is, we at least got one more sermon where we're like, yes, keep going, Abe. And then we'll have another letdown. But Thank God we're saved by grace. Okay, so he's on a roll is what I'm saying. This is the start of a good roll. And so what I say unto you is if you want to be on a good roll, then keep close to God. Keep close to his word, the Bible. Keep close to his church. Serve God by evangelizing. Serve God by using your gifts in the church. Serve God by supporting the Great Commission. And serve God by helping the poor and the vulnerable because we're commanded to do all that, right? When you are found close to God in his proximity, then you will be found doing the righteous things of God. Now, if you have started to stray from God and you're moving away from him, then just turn back. Our text tells you that just turn back. Go back, right? As long as you're alive, you could always turn back. It's as I said, the point of the text is when a believer falls hard, there's a way back. And the way back is always the same. It's through the gospel. It's through the cross. Just come back to Christ. And when you're tempted to doubt your salvation, like I've just done things too bad. Christ will not take me back. Remember Romans 8 verse 1. Paul writes this, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's written by a guy once guilty of murder, killing the church. And yet in Christ, there is now no condemnation. So don't let your doubt get you. When you're back at Christ and back at the foot of the cross, where you're supposed to be, everything's covered and you know that, right? But for those who are 
currently moving away from Christ, going more and more eastward, more and more into the wilderness, wilderness, excuse me, further and further towards Sodom, then maybe you should doubt your salvation. Because there are many warnings in Scripture that tell you you might be an apostate, somebody who never really believed in the first place. And 2 Peter chapter 2 says, for that person, eternal punishment's worse than for the person who never claimed to believe at all. It's worse to say I'm a Christian and then walk away from it than to just never say you're a Christian at all. Now, there's a lot of warnings like that in the Bible. And those warnings are meant to get the real believers to repent and stop playing with fire. Those whom God has chosen, they will make it to the end. And one way God gets them to the end is with those warnings, right? They help us turn back, like we saw Abram turn back. But for, unbel- for the people who aren't truly saved, and they hear these warnings, and they're not moved, and they're like, ah, that's stupid, and they keep moving more and more eastward, well, then it proves they were never saved. So those passages serve the function of identifying them and identifying us when we come back to the Lord. So again, this text reminds us of this. It encourages us that there's always a way back. And it reminds us that if God can begin to save the world through a guy like Abram, then God can save us and he can use us too. I mean, if God could use him, he could use us as well. Now, we know Abram is super important in redemptive history, and Jews and Gentiles are more or less grafted into his covenant. He's the spiritual father of the Gentiles, the physical father of, of the Jews, so Abram's super important. But his sin here shows us something really important, and it's that even though Abram's huge in the grand scheme of things, he is not the seed of the woman. He's a sinner like us who needed the same Savior that we needed. And so really what the story of Abram does is it points you forward to Christ in two different ways. One, God promised that all the nations will be blessed through Abram's seed. It's both talking about Israel, but then specifically the one chosen one that comes from Israel and all the world will be blessed because that single servant of the Lord will save both Israel, as we saw on Sunday, and he will save the Gentiles. So it points to Christ just through the promise. You often hear us say that every text in the Old Testament makes a beeline to the gospel. It does. It all points to Christ. But this also points to Christ in another way, right? Since Abram is so flawed, he can't be the one through whom salvation ultimately will come. It means there must be another. And so we look for that other. And we read the, the, the drama of Scripture as it unfolds. And finally, we get to that other. We get to Jesus Christ. And so I say all that. So if there's anybody here who does not know the Lord. Understand this, right now you are doomed. You are in your sins. One day you'll stand before a holy and righteous God, but listen, he sent a savior. He sent a savior to remove and reverse the curse. So if you come to Jesus who died in our place on the cross to forever remove our sins and forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of our unrighteousness, And Jesus rose on the third day, right, to give us the credit of his righteousness. If you come to him and turn away from your sin and believe on him, you will be saved. And it will prove that you are one who God has chosen. Sometimes people will be like, well, how do I know that I'm one of the ones that God wrote my name in the Lamb's book of life and eternity past? If you believe on the Lord with all your heart, then you are one of those. That's how you know. It's that simple. So turn from your sin. God gives a real invitation to everyone. So turn from your sin, come to God, repent, believe, and you will be forgiven. And then if you ever fall hard, you come back to the cross. Just like we saw Abram go back to that altar, right? It's that simple. So don't walk out of here still in your sin. If you have any questions, come talk to me. What we're going to do is we're going to pray, and then we'll be dismissed. So let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you so much for you being God and for you... um, really giving us a text like this where we see 